This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Rishi Sunak heralds a new age of optimism, but what on earth does that mean? And what else did we learn from today's budget and spending review? I'm Heather Stewart, political editor of The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly. This budget helps with the cost of living. This budget levels up to a higher wage, higher skill, higher productivity economy. This budget builds a stronger economy for the British people, and I commend it to the House. Budget day is always a big one in Westminster, although the drama was slightly diminished this time by a blizzard of pre-briefed spending pledges. There are still some big headlines to discuss, though, and some of them hadn't already appeared in a press release. But how much help was there for families already being hit hard by the cost of living crisis? Was this a budget for levelling up? What kind of economy does Sunak want to build? And is he ready to commit the funding necessary to tackle the climate crisis and smooth the UK's transition to net zero? Green spending decisions have taken on an urgent significance, as while Sunak was poring over spreadsheets, his colleague Alok Sharma was preparing to chair the UN Climate Summit, which will kick off in Glasgow this weekend. Fiona Harvey and Peter Walker talk about the man tasked with bringing world leaders together to try and save the planet. That's all in this week's Politics Weekly. But first, it's Budget Day, so who better to talk to than The Guardian's economics editor Larry Elliott and Guardian columnist Aditya Chakraborty about what we've just heard Sunak say in the House of Commons. Aditya, we kicked off, didn't we, with the Chancellor getting a bit of a telling off. As Mr Speaker has said, and all ministers know, important policy announcements should be made first to Parliament. Because we've seen quite a lot of this budget, haven't we, in, in dribs and drabs in the media in recent days. Is that, was it more than usual, did you think? Oh, gosh, yeah. I mean, we had like umpteen press releases and this budget had its very own bit of designer branding. Uh, so it's gone very Branson, this uh, this budget, with its own kind <laughs> of particularly kind of friendly fonts and then uh, kind of accessible multimillionaire chancellor in his socks and sliders I remember Gordon Brown and he was good at media management. I remember George Osborne. Rishi Sunak trumps both of them easily. And Larry, it's partly to do with the fact that the Chancellor can then sort of frame the way these things are reported, right? The fact that it gets it gets kind of 
trickled out over several days. Do you think it will change their behaviour? He, he sounded quite chastened, didn't he? Eleanor Lang, the deputy speaker, gave him a bit of a, a telling off. Yeah, she gave him a bit of a rollicking. And I think it probably will pull him up short a bit. I mean, there was a time when the all you used to see of the chance was him out feeding the ducks in St James's Park in the morning of the budget, you know. And now you get three quarters of it announced in advance. I mean, it is, it is a bit much. And I can see why MPs are... Uh, hacked off about it. it it's not a particularly fruitful way of going about things but so uh, yeah it was uh he was really given a, a going over both by Lindsay Hoyle uh yesterday and uh, uh, earlier in the week and by and by Eleanor Lang yeah it was, and and well deserved in my view and so so Aditya let's get on to the substance of it it was a kind of a, a bit of a budget of two halves or maybe a budget of sort of three quarters and a quarter because the the first <laughs> quite long chunk of it was 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 all about sort of spending pledges really wasn't it yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think we've got used to Conservative chancellors who do one of two things. One is they they cut, 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 like George Osborne and to a less extent Philip Hammond. And the other is they, they kind of spend, spend, spend. And and this was somewhere between the two. This wasn't an austerity budget. Um, Rishi Sunak's been really lucky in that the Office for Budget Responsibility, who do the, the forecasting uh, for, for the shape of the economy, basically think the economy is in better shape than it looked at the start of this year. Thanks to this government's actions, they forecast the economy to return to its pre-COVID level at the turn of the year, earlier than they thought in March. That leads to him having more tax revenues and he's he's decided he's going to spend the vast bulk of them. On the other hand, it's not spend, spend, spend because the kind of money that he was he was announcing was nowhere near what school teachers what local councils what people who were worried about universal credit cuts what were asking for so it fell somewhere short uh, but it was certainly a difficult one for the labor opposition to respond to and larry he sounded most himself i thought when he did that sort of little bit at the end about how taxes are rising to their highest level as a percentage of gdp since the 1950s I don't like it, but I cannot apologise for it. You know, yes, taxes have gone up to their highest uh, level in living memory and beyond, but um, he doesn't want to be a high-tax chancellor and he, he wants to cut taxes. It was a bit odd, that bit, wasn't it? Well, that's when the real Rishi Sunak stood up, I thought. I mean, that was mm. it was 99% of the budget was was tax and spend. And it could have been a chancellor for many, any time in the 60s and 70s. And then the last 10 minutes was Rishi Sunak, the you know, new Thatcherite chancellor, to be, um, or prime minister to be, I suppose, in his in, in his ambitions. So, but I mean, it's quite clear that the direction of travel is for taxes to be cut before the next election. And there was some sort of sense, I thought, of unreality about Rishi Sunak's boosterism and his sort of wild optimism about the state of the economy when the economy is actually slowing down and inflation's picking up and large parts of the country are facing a cost of living crisis. I'm not sure that they will quite buy into the sort of clear blue skies of golden optimism that, that Rishi Sunak was, was, was trying to portray. But I mean, he, he has given himself the scope to cut taxes, all things going well over the next year or so, yes. This was really a tale of two budgets. You got the one that was delivered in in the chamber, you know, full of boasts about what, what he was going to do, high skills, high wages, uh, um, jokes at the at the expense of the opposition, of course, Ed Miliband first and foremost. But then buried away in the documents, you see a very different picture of the economy as revealed by the Office for Budget Responsibility and, and admitted by the Treasury, which is actually households having much less money in their in their pockets than you might think, going by what the Chancellor is saying. The average 
household will not feel much better in real terms come the end of the five-year period. Um, And then you couple that with all the various spending pressures that we know are coming down the track, not just in terms of fuel prices and, and energy prices winter, but we know that, that the move towards net zero will end up costing households a lot more money. Um, and I, I just don't see how those two very different images, those two very different budgets really spoke to each other at all this afternoon. Do you think there's a political risk in that, Larry? I mean, he was very optimistic and he talked about um, you know growth being up and so on. And uh, similarly, Boris Johnson in his party conference speech, he was very sort of boosterish and talked about this high wage economy. That the suggestion from the forecast and the Office for Budget Responsibility has done that we're, we're really not going to be in anything like that, isn't it? No, heck yes. I mean, there's a, there's a whole bunch of risk involved here. I mean, for a start, inflation could be a lot higher than anybody thinks. I mean, every 1% on inflation and interest rates, as a consequence, knocks £20 billion out of his, out of his spending plan. So, you know, Load twenty-five billion pounds to spare sounds like a lot of money. It could quite easily be wiped out by a winter of rising prices and cost of living pressures, or by the economy growing much less fast than anybody imagines. Both of those are real and present risks, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, th- 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 there was a sense of unreality about quite a lot of the speech, and that was quite well picked apart by Rachel Reeves. Who did a, I thought she did a pretty good job um, attacking the budget. Why are working people being asked to pay more tax and put up? with worse services? Why is billions of pounds in taxpayers' money being funnelled to friends and donors of the Conservative Party, while millions of families are having £20 a week taken off of them? Madam Deputy Speaker, why can't Britain do better than this? And she stood in for Keir Starman and she did, she did a pretty good job in taking the t- chances to task. I mean, and the other really interesting thing about it was that, I mean, I always imagined that the reason the budget was so early this year was to coincide with the week before COP, where there would be a budget that was very green in its tone and in its measures. And yet, you'd never know that there was a supposed climate emergency from listening to Rishi Sunak for an hour today at all. That was quite jarring, Aditya, wasn't it? When they were explaining to us afterwards, the Treasury officials, about this new band for air passenger duty for ultra-long flights. And, you know, we were saying to them, right, you know, is this going to make it much more costly to go on an ultra-long flight? And they said it'll be um, it'll be £4 more, expen- more expensive, which, you know, doesn't seem to me is going to be a great deterrent. They, they do seem to have a real problem sort of telling the public or levelling with the public with the fact that they might have to sort of change their behaviour a bit, don't they? Absolutely incredible, I thought. You know, like... Um... So the fuel duty escalator didn't go up yet again, which ha- which is now like an annual ritual. But then um, it's it's actually, he was making it cheaper for you to fly to Glasgow for COP if you wanted. Flights between airports in England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland will, from April 2023, be subject to a new lower rate of air passenger duty. And then boasting about the roads that he was creating. Like there, there was no even... A hint, no, no kind of apology of, of greenness in, in, in this budget. Very, very striking for someone who, as a, as a politician, always seems to be so future focused, all about modernity. And he's not interested in the environment at all. Absolutely. Um, Aditya, one of the areas uh, where he was a little bit generous was this um, change in the taper rate for universal credit. I have decided to cut this rate, not by 1%. Not by 2%, but by 8%.
I mean, he, he sounded quite shocked that he'd sort of discovered that 63 <laughs> pence in the pound gets taken back from you as you earn more if you're on universal credit. I mean, it, it, it only partially reverses, doesn't it, the, the cut that he insisted going ahead with. But what's, what's going on there, do you think? I mean... This uh, this was his attempt to kind of mitigate some of the, the cost of living squeeze that we are seeing going on. Last year, at the outset of the pandemic, the Chancellor put on 20 quid uh, onto, onto universal credit. He's now taken off, despite a lot of protests, including from his own side, including from uh, people like Ian Duncan Smith. And what he's done is he's effectively said, OK, so I couldn't allow the 20 quid extra to stay on because that would have cost me, the Chancellor, six billion quid. But I'll give you half of that back by by reducing the amount uh, we take back when you're when you're in work. The thing to remember about his his generosity it's bigger than people expected, but it helps really if you're in work. It does nothing for you if you're disabled and can't go into work and you're on universal credit, or if you're long term out of work and there's no prospect of you getting a job anytime soon. It also makes it quite difficult for Chancellor because it means that more people in work will end up on universal credit, which is something George Osborne always wanted to avoid with, with, with this particular benefit. So it leaves him in a slightly ungainly place, uh, but it is a bit of money back, even if it's only half of what he's taken away. It was quite clear that going into this crisis, the welfare system wasn't fit for purpose. And we've come out of it with a welfare system, funnily enough, that's not fit for purpose. <laughs> but it won't, as a teacher says, it won't actually help the poorest people. It helps the people in work and helps the people in work who are on the on the higher incomes of those people in work too. So people on lower incomes won't feel the benefit. But it is welcome. I mean, it is, it is a recognition that they got it completely and utterly wrong. Yeah. Uh, Aditya, there was also um, quite a bit of tax reform around the edges wasn't there he claimed that these were things he could do because of brexit i mean there's a, a, a something complicated about tonnage tax which i'm not <laughs> an expert on i have to say we seem to involve flying the red ensign and caused a great cheer on the on the tory backbenches. so i can announce today that our tonnage tax will for the first time ever reward companies for adopting the uk merchant shipping flag the red ensign there was some quite george osborne about that which is He'd obviously thought of a joke to do with the red flag and then yes. had worked his way all the way back to coming up with a policy that enabled him to stand at the dispatch box and say, oh, yes, well, we can now make a joke about the red flag. And, and terrific, had something to do with the EU as well, which does bring me on to another point. It is notable that that speech had no mention whatsoever of the B word, it had no mention of Brexit. There were a couple of references to the benefits of leaving the EU and, and the freedom it gives him to reform taxes. But again, if you look in the OBR, there's an admission in there that actually the UK is going to lose in terms of trade because of um, the, the, the new distant relationship it has with, with the European Union. It also loses in terms of um, immigration. Um, so the costs of the uh, of leaving the EU are in the OBR document, even if they weren't revealed uh, by the Chancellor this afternoon. Larry, do you think it was surprising there wasn't more said about about Brexit and the benefits of it, apart, apart from that sort of aside about tax reform? No, no, I mean, I think the Chancellor is actually quite upbeat about the benefits of Brexit. I mean, you know, he, generally he's an optimist about the the freedoms that it gives to Britain. I mean, I thought there, I thought actually there was a bit more about Brexit than there has been in in recent budget speeches. So the fuel duty was was an example of of that. But I I, I thought that you know. The the Chancellor's view is that Brexit provides opportunities for the for the UK, and I don't think that he's he's, he's changed that. that. And I thought the the speech was actually was quite populist in its 
in its tone, you know, the, all the boo stuff. I mean, the, the boo stuff was like a return to budgets of yesteryear when, you know, we, we used to we used to sort of spend our time wondering what he was going to do to fags and booze and petrol. The, the booze duties was quite was quite a substantial part of the speech. Today, we are taking advantage of leaving the EU yeah. to announce the most radical simplification of alcohol duties for over 140 years. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think that's right, and and a, and a, a surprise, unlike as you say, quite quite a lot of it. And Aditya, um, beforehand in the cabinet readout they sent us of you know what Sunak had told the the cabinet, he said that levelling up was going to run like a sort of golden thread through the budget. <laughs> I mean, did you did you get that sense? So there's, there's a lot of announcements about oh, I don't know new museum exhibits in Liverpool, and you know lots of places are getting kind of money for their theatre or their Lido or you know whatever it might be. But did, did you get a sense that there's a a sort of project there, a real genuine levelling up approach? You got much less of a sense of a coherent plan. I mean, this is, this is, I think, is the most serious charge that I would be levelling at him from the point of view of levelling up, is that there are small amounts of money which are now being given out for, for, for big kind of photo opportunities, I suppose. Steve Fothergill at the Sheffield Hallam University points out that much of this money that's been dished out so far is just old money that's been given a new name. And there was actually very little extra new money, serious new money for levelling up, which is which is really weird considering... A, how much this government talks about it, how much Boris Johnson talks about it, but B, what a big job levelling up actually would be. If you want to really reduce the kind of regional inequalities that have grown up in Britain very sharply over the last 40 years, then it requires a huge amount of effort and a huge amount of money. The economics of it, I think, are just really, they don't stack up because you've got to have some sort of long-term plan for rebuilding the local economies of these parts of the country it's not just a question of putting in a new tram line or a new cycle path or you know improving the ra- improving the rail network a bit it's 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 a fully fledged structural reconstruction of these parts of the of the economies of these parts of the country and that 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 involves some heavy lifting and some serious government money i haven't detected any of that in the last two years of this government. No, absolutely. We'll see if there's more detail in that white paper. But as you say, there certainly wasn't very much today. Before I let you both go, I just wanted to ask you whether you whether you see, you know, we, we can see from Rishi Sunak's incredibly uh, polished kind of branding and his social media and his vanity photographer that he's got and all of this stuff. <laughs> he clearly sees himself as a, as a future Conservative Prime Minister. I wonder whether, whether when you were watching him today, you could imagine him being a future Prime Minister. Aditya, what do you think? I mean, he's certainly in some kind of social media arms race with Liz Truss. They're both feverishly <laughs> posting, got their own particular f- photographer and, and all the rest of it. The serious answer would be, yes, I can. But this wasn't his budget to do that. This basically was Boris Johnson's budget. But yes, I think he's a serious and intelligent politician uh, whose politics uh, happen to be the complete polar opposite of mine. But I can well see him in number 10, such is the way of politics, after all. Larry, what do you think? Well... Yeah, he's smooth enough. He's charming enough. I mean, he's got all the sort of um, he's got all the ingredients that you'd think uh, would make a, a prime minister. He's, he's a bright bloke. I mean, what I would say is that history suggests that not that many chances of the, of the exchequer go on to get the big job. And the last one who did it had a pretty torrid time, Gordon Brown, when he did get the job. So chancellors tend to go through periods of extreme unpopularity and Sunak has been quite lucky so far in that he's just been ladling out large amounts of money which has been borrowed uh, from the future. Um, We will see I think over the next 12 to 18 months when the tax rises kick in when people's 
energy bills go up, just how popular Sunak remains, both with the public and with Tory MPs. So I wouldn't put a great deal of money on Sunak being the next Prime Minister myself. For anyone wanting to hear more about the man behind the budget, Rishi Sunak, Larry and I spoke to Michael Safi for Wednesday's episode of Today in Focus, so search for that wherever you get your podcasts. After the break, Peter Walker and Fiona Harvey profile Alok Sharma ahead of COP26. We'll be right back. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to Politics Weekly. I'm Heather Stewart. We are only days away from the COP26 UN Climate Summit in Glasgow, arguably one of the most important conferences in our lifetime. Murmurings from Downing Street haven't been that positive this week, with the PM admitting that it's touch and go whether COP26 will be a success or not. This comes after many were shocked to hear the government had voted against an amendment in the House of Lords to stop water companies from dumping raw sewage into British waters. Maybe luckily enough for us, technically Johnson isn't running the summit. That has been left to Alok Sharma, the president of COP26. So who is he and how's he gone about the job of trying to avert the climate crisis? Guardian political correspondent Peter Walker spoke to Fiona Harvey, our environment correspondent. He started off by asking her how Sharma got the job. Our overarching objective for COP26 is to keep within reach the goal of limiting average global temperature rises to 1.5 degrees. To achieve... I mean, to people who kind of watch Westminster, Alex Sharma was this, you know, reasonably competent but quite unexciting minister who could be sent out to, you know, bore on the radio and not give away any news. Why do you think he was appointed president of COP26? Well, they needed someone because they'd sacked the previous president. <laughs> That's very <really> true. <laughs> but what, 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 do you, what do you think he kind of brings to it, though, beyond just being someone to fill the role? His background is he was International Development Secretary, and I think that really helped him in building up relationships. At the time he was doing the mm. job, of course, the UK had a very good reputation uh, in terms of overseas aid uh, and development. The UK was one of the, the greatest countries in the world, really, for doing that. That was before the uh, the cuts to overseas aid. So in that job, he built up an awful lot of contacts, an awful lot of trust with the developing world, and that's crucial at COP26, because it's really the developing countries who are the, the moral authority there. It's the small, little countries who have a say uh, at COP26 when they don't get much of a say in any other forum around the world. Uh, and if they're the ones who are most vulnerable to climate change, they're the ones who push hardest for action. And he has those relationships. He's got that respect. Sharma is often kind of known as a politician who doesn't really 
flap or look particularly uh, particularly stressed. But you've met him a few times in recent months. I mean, how does he seem to be doing? Because even for a politician like him, there's quite a lot of pressure, isn't there? It's huge pressure. The pressure really is on the presidency of the COP. They're the ones who are in control. They're the ones who organise everything. And they're the ones who bear all, all of the responsibility. They've also got to be neutral. It's really important that they're not seen as acting in their own interests. This is very much not something uh, to do with the Westminster bubble. This is the UK uh, acting as an honest broker on the international stage, leaving behind its own narrow political interests and just being there to listen to what countries need, listen to what all of the other countries are telling them and try to find a consensus and a way forward. So it's all about diplomacy, nothing about national politics. Do you think the rest of the government has kind of picked up that message? Because there's been a lot of briefings and counter-briefings between the business department and the treasury over green measures and what could or should be done and things like that. Is is it a worry that kind of squabbling could undermine this neutral COP message or is this just all, you know, what goes on normally before a COP? It's really unhelpful for Alok Sharma that there is this rift going on in the cabinet. We have seen Alok Sharma go all around the world. He's been doing a, a huge amount of diplomacy, talking to practically every country out there, and yet he's had no backup. Where has the Foreign Secretary been? Where was Dominic Raab? Uh, And where is Liz Truss now? Uh, The Chancellor doesn't seem to be helping. The Business Secretary, Kwasi Kwarteng, he's doing a little bit. Um, But, you know, even the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister came along to the UN General Assembly. That was the biggest speech he's made, really, on the climate. You know, he rather undercut it by talking about Kermit the Frog. Kermit the Frog sang. It's not easy being green. Do you remember that one? I want you to know that he was wrong. That went down like a lead balloon with uh, an awful lot of other countries. Uh, They've told me that. So, you know, it's as if Alok Sharma has been shouldering this whole thing on his own. And I guess that makes his physical role at COP even more vital than it would otherwise be, because... I mean, Boris Johnson is going to be there for the first couple of days when all the world leaders are generally there. And I suppose he may or may not turn up the end, depending on whether or not things are looking good. But Sharma is presumably, you know, there all the way. I mean, that's quite a lot of pressure, isn't it? You know, I, I think it, he does realise what an important place he has in history. This is the biggest climate change meeting we have ever seen in any terms, because what's happened is that we have failed for 30 years to tackle climate change. And now the problem is so urgent that if we don't tackle it in the next 10, then serious, catastrophic climate change will be pretty much irreversible. So, yeah, uh, he's he's under enormous pressure and the eyes of history are on him. I mean, it's coming all quite soon. As far as you can tell, how do you think Sharma and the team around him, what are they thinking now? Do they think that this could all go well? Or with cops, is it absolutely impossible to tell until you actually get down to the nitty gritty? We know that this COP is not going to produce a perfect deal. You know, I talked to UN officials, US officials, UK officials privately, and they all said, we're not going to get to where we wanted to be. So there is going to be a gap between where we need to be and where we're going to be. So the crucial thing is that COP26 should address that gap. We won't get a perfect deal but that's not a disaster. 
an imperfect deal could be good enough. And what do you think the chances of even an imperfect deal like that currently are? Or is, as I was saying, is it just very, very difficult to uh, to uh, tell before people start talking? There are many reasons to be optimistic. In fact, arguably, this COP has already been a success. Because if you look at what's happened in the last two years, uh, we have seen enormous progress that was not even thought of at Paris. The term net zero doesn't appear in the Paris Agreement, and yet now countries around the world responsible for more than two-thirds of global emissions are signed up to a net zero target, which is in line with scientific advice. That's a huge step forward. We also have these national plans for cuts in the next decade from a huge number of countries, from the the US, uh, the EU, the UK, uh, and some of those are very strong. Again, we didn't have that at Paris. So that's huge progress. At Paris, 1.5 degrees was not the focus. Two degrees was the focus. Now, at this COP26, we're looking at very, very firmly at 1.5 degrees. Now, that's a huge step forward. It means that if we can stay within 1.5 degrees, we will be in a much better state than we could even have imagined at Paris. And it's really important to recognise that achievement. It has not been easy to get an agreement, to get people to agree 1.5 instead of 2 degrees. And that has gone largely unnoticed, but it's a real achievement for Alex Sharma to have done that. What do you think Alex Sharma might do after this is over? I mean, apart from take a long break and lie in a darkened room for a few weeks. I hope he gets to do that. I hope we all do. But the uh, the thing is that actually a lot of people don't realise this, but the UK's job uh, as COP president only begins at COP26. They're not actually presidents yet. They're not presidents until the meeting. And then they, they carry on being the presidents for a whole year afterwards till the next country, which is probably going to be Egypt, we think, for COP27, they carry on until the next country takes over. So we've got a whole year in which the UK uh, will be looked to uh, by countries around the world uh, to keep guiding this process and to keep trying to, to make things better, to keep improving on whatever deal we get from Glasgow. So Alok Sharma, I'm afraid, he can't, he can't drop this, he can't go away. Um, he's he's really got to keep going for another year after this. Well, fingers crossed it all goes well. It's not going to be only going to be a very, very interesting meeting. It's going to be, you know, no exaggeration to say it's crucial for the future of the world. Um, I'll be in Glasgow for some time, so I will look forward to seeing you there. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's all from us this week. For anyone wanting a slight gear change, my colleague Grace Dent is back with her podcast Comfort Eating, and it's starting with a delightful conversation with Stephen Fry. But for now, I want to thank our guests, Larry Elliott, Aditya Chakraborty, Peter Walker and Fiona Harvey. The producer this week was Hattie Moyer and I'm Heather Stewart. Thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.